previously on the Enneagram Journey. And this is my workspace. This is it. Check that out. You smell it? Uh-huh. As you can smell, there's a lot of different odors going on in here. So you have an office and a workspace. I do. You know, I just, I cannot create in the same space that I conduct business. I'm sure that you're the same with your doodles. Smell. It's fire. Uh-huh. Bonfire. Bond. Then love this one. James Bonfire. Yeah. <laughs> I am Bonfire. When I get frustrated or irritated or angry, I come up here and I just smell all my candles. And it just, poof, goes away. Just like that. Just like that. And when to listen. And I think aggressive numbers, when we, other numbers, share pain with them, love us by wanting to fix. Yeah. And being present is just hard. Yeah. Then as you wish. But know this. My pain is still far greater than yours! What a dramatic introduction to today's episode of the Anagram Journey podcast with Suzanne Stabile and today's guest, Anagram 4, KJ Ramsey. My name is Joel, and as usual, I'll be along for the ride. Let's talk about chronic pain, this too shall last, acceptance, and find out why Suzanne calls KJ a four to the fourth power. First, though, I've got to tell you about a couple of upcoming events. The Anagram Journey Toward Wholeness in Dallas and in Denver. Suzanne has made four tour stops this year, Houston, Austin, Richmond, and Portland. And the feedback we have heard the most is, quote, this weekend wasn't what I was expecting and it was exactly what I needed. Podcast conversations are dynamite. In Dallas, Katie Alanese and Justine Guzman will be joining the Godmother to talk about body image, relationships, and since they're both therapists, I imagine we'll be talking a little bit about therapy. In Denver, Nadia Bowles-Weber and Suzanne Stabile, live and in person. Enough said. Then on Saturday, for both stops, Suzanne will be teaching around a journey toward wholeness. Not what's in the book. As she says, you can read what's in the book yourself. You don't need her to read it. If you do need her to read it, it is available on Audible. That's another thing. The last two years has changed all of us. But who among us is going to experience transformation? Dallas, that event's going to be June the 3rd and the 4th. And Denver, July 15th and 16th. You can get tickets and more information about the location and all that jazz at lifeinthetrinityministry.com slash tour22. Tour, T-O-U-R, 2-2, the number is 2-2. lifeinthetrinityministry.com slash tour22. Finally, L-Team's flagship event yearly in August. This year, it's from intentional to intuitive. I know you're ready to get to the podcast, so keep listening at the end for more information about the event that your journey has been leading you up to. You can join online or in Dallas, August 4th through 6th, from intentional to intuitive. And now, though, let's go ahead and send it on over to KJ and Suzanne. One of my best, well, actually two of my very best friends are twos. And that's a big part of our friendship is like them naming how they really feel. Yeah. yeah. Like getting into their bodies and yeah. yeah. All that. Mm-hmm. I want us to start recording. A, a, We're recording. It's happening. Great. Joel will edit. I'm going to light, I'm going to light my candle. Oh, great. Um, I love ritual. Yeah. A ritual oh. love force. Well, let's real quick, let's explain this can, you know, I think people are going to want to know about this candle ritual. Oh, okay. Um, I light a candle every time I do an interview or also at the beginning of seeing clients for the day. I see my clients from right here in my study. I'm still all virtual and it's for me a way of acknowledging that this is sacred space and that this is a time of presence, like focused presence and attunement, even more than regular life. Um, Sometimes I need the like mental cue and the physical cue to say like, be here. Mm -hmm. So yeah. And then in between clients, um, I use Palo Santo wood and just like kind of 
do a little bit. And I like to, you know, creep out the very, very Christian folks who like, what do you think of the fact that I'm using incense right now? <laughs> Fantastic. But I love it. It just kind of helps. I, I think it, ma- it matters with energy and the distribution of just like how we show up and kind of clearing the space for the next person. So I just talked to a friend of mine yesterday who is a four and she's a, an artist, a portrait painter, and uh, she's quite, quite good. And uh, Austin, I guess, has a, a thing every year where people can just go around town and studios of artists are open and you can just come by and see what they do and their work and how they do it and all that. She was saying that a guy came by who was just not appropriate. He'd been drinking a lot and he just mm-hmm. wasn't appropriate. So after she, she was just talking about him and how otherwise it had been a great experience. And she said, so he was there. And after he left, I just got a smudge stick and just kind of took care of the room and took care of the space. And, yeah. and then it was better. And I yeah. was sharing with her that my, my husband is a pastor, United mm-hmm. Methodist, but a former Catholic priest. He has an aspergillum, which is a, uh, for anybody who doesn't know, it's like what you throw holy water with out of this lovely mm-hmm. thing. And we've done that in every home we've moved into, in every office he's moved into. We use it when we have something that we don't want lingering. So mm-hmm. uh, I've never talked about this on the podcast. I'm so glad that we get to based on your ritual and what you're doing. And uh, yeah, yeah. Well, ritual rituals are becoming a really potent part of my life like a just in the last couple years to regain um intention around transitions and to be able to make space for grief that's hard in our culture to name or allow to take up space uh it's so from like the smallness of lighting a candle to the largeness of creating an event or an experience with my closest friends uh it's or even just stuff with clients too it's like the elements of fire and water (laughs) um it's actually substance for us to be able to like bring substance to these parts of our lives that feel really intangible but we we know they matter but it's really hard for us to allow them to matter Mm -hmm. so yeah it matters the water the fire yep it all matters it helps us show up Yes, it does. And stay present. Mm-hmm. You know, if like if you're wandering and you see the candle, you go, oh, wait, wait, I'm, yep. I'm committed to this. Right. Mm-hmm. I just got off of a podcast with uh, two guys who wanted to talk about the Enneagram and um, worship. And I was saying you have to find ways to create worship that is appropriate for thinkers, feelers and doers. You can't mm-hmm. leave out one of those. And mm-hmm. it was the same discussion, just to, you know, use an Enneagram and a little bit different, but the same. Yeah. I love that. I'd be curious how the rituals vary for each Enneagram number, because we, oh, today I'm editing a podcast with uh, Juanita Rasmus. So she's an Enneagram one and we, and by the way, I want to talk with you. Oh, can't wait to hear you tell that story. When I was reading your info about yelling at the phone, I could see it in my mind. I was like, this is hilarious. Yeah, uh, it's embarrassing and wonderful. And listeners will have heard this podcast by the time they hear me talking right now. And she started with like a getting grounded and centering ourselves and looking and no one's ever as at least done it while the mic was hot, you know? So I thought that was very interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. These yeah. guys that I just got off the podcast with did it too. Mm-hmm. A lot, lot happening around ritual these days. Thank goodness. You know, the burning the candle and the sage and the, 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 the I, that could be skewed towards fours. So. <laughs> that was generous. <laughs> I would have said that's a very fun uh, thing to do. <laughs> it is, but I just embrace that this is what I'm like and it helps me show up. So Yeah, it might sound cliche, but it actually is really meaningful for me. And if that allows me to be present even more, 
so be it. I would have to say, knowing your story, I don't think it is cliche for you as a four. I think Joel is saying, I can see how that would be meaningful for you. And I think I took it a different direction. But one moment that we could walk into here, if you want to, is that it's far more meaningful for you than most people think because you um, don't have a history in your spiritual journey with a lot of ritual coming out of the uh, experiences that you had. So it's actually kind of a, a coming of age and fourness, or I don't know how to say coming of age in the right way. I wish I did. Uh, it's a, it's an integration. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That allows you to appreciate and use ritual as opposed to seeing it as something that might be suspect. not okay. Suspect. Yeah. So I'll take that two directions. One you might, I know the one you're thinking of, but ritual is an integration for me because I, in, in, in one form, it's about my body. It's about being able to remember my substance, remember my senses, because I am a complex trauma survivor. And so as a child growing up in a chaotic environment with parents who are good, but also there was a lot, um, they talk about trauma, not just as the, not just as the bad, terrible things that happened to us, but also the absence of attunement, the absence of connection. And that's a big part of my story. There was also some terrible things, <laughs> but, all, but a lot of it was this absence. And when we're growing up in a situation where there's not someone reflecting back to us that our emotions matter and there is space for them, that our cries and even our joy um, deserve attention. We don't get enough of that. We learn how to disconnect from our bodies. It's simply too painful to have unsoothed stress. And for me to come back to my senses, to smell a candle, to see the fire, that actually is a cue to say it is safe now to, to remember my substance. It is safe now to smell and to cry and to laugh. I can show up and things are different now. So it signals to my body that the past is the past, not the present. So that's one part. And then I think the part that you might've been getting at is that for part of my adult life, we were in a more non-denominational uh, background, <laughs> background like culture uh, that was all about the lights and shine and like a place that really wanted to be a mega church and I could go on. I don't want to, I don't want to demonize too much, but it was a, it was a performative culture. And part of the performance was about in, intellectualism. And so we were very disconnected from our bodies and the people, you know, the, the community that I was part of would have outright made fun of the sort of thing that I just shared about doing. Um, or would have written some like, I'll just put it out there, Gospel Coalition op-ed about how sacrilegious that is and how we need to be like on guard against people like me, like mm -hmm. truthfully. So <laughs> you don't know if you want to cut that out, but it is a reclamation for me that all of our experience, all of our existence, our matter, our substance matters to God because of the incarnation. And I get to not just be a walking head. I get to be fully here. So that's some of an answer. <laughs> yeah. I, I like all of that. I, and I'm going to jump in and talk about incarnational theology with you for a minute, if that's okay, because Absolutely. it's, it's really important. And I don't think we um, talk about it enough. So I was um, a life in the training ministries that had a big event and the speakers included 
um, uh, Brian McLaren, Phyllis Tickle, Richard Rohr, and me. And for the Q&A, we're all sitting at a table. We all have microphones up on the stage. Hundreds of people there. And for the Q&A, everybody had to write down their questions. So they read this question and it says, this one is for any of you who want to answer. Uh, Explain incarnational theology. And um, all three of them got a real little tickle out of saying, I think we should let Suzanne answer that one. Because, of course, I was the only non-theologian there. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> and I thought, okay, well, okay then. And I had just heard a story about, um, who's the guy who wrote Where the Wild Things Are? Not sure. Keep going, I can get that answer. Okay. <laughs> um, anyway, I, I had read that when children write him a letter. Maurice or, Sendak. Yeah, Maurice Sendak, writing Where the Wild Things Are. I'd heard that when people send kids, send him a a letter about his books, that he just has a postcard that gets sent back to them. But this little boy, I think, I really think his name was Tommy, which of course you would throw in, but I think that's what it was. Um, It's it's always either Tommy or Johnny. Those are the two little boys that have done everything. Yeah. Well, I I think this might've really been Tommy, but I don't know. Uh, His mom helped him write this long letter about how much he loved where the wild things are. And Maurice Sendak had some time. So he just drew him an original postcard. So imagine an original coming to your child in the mail, which you would save forever knowing that it had value and all that. So it comes and uh, life goes on for everybody, except that Maurice Sendak gets another letter. This time it's from the mom. And she says, I'm so sorry to do this. Is there any way you could send another postcard? Tommy, Loved the one you sent so much, he ate it. That was my explanation of incarnational theology. And honestly, it left the theologians kind of trying to figure out what to say next. And I thought, oh, yeah, just, just let me answer that. And I, I think if we could get our hands and hearts around becoming more, not knowing more, feeling more, doing more, but becoming more. Mm-hmm. then we might understand incarnational theology in the way it was intended. Absolutely. Okay. Well, I want to go back a little bit. Would you please explain AS to everybody so that mm-hmm. the context is set for me to talk to you about the next thing I want to, in terms of how you're choosing to relate to your body? Yeah. So I have ankylosing spondylitis AS and it is a autoimmune disease that affects the spine. Uh, but for me, it also affects most of my joints. So every day I'm in some measure of physical pain. Some days I am totally disabled by it. I've had some big setbacks this fall. So I'm well right now, but I've had some, I've had many weeks in bed this fall, uh, where I've had to just set aside everything. Uh, and that happens when I am in a big flare of my AS. Um, I experience symptoms kind of like having the flu. Just your whole body is exhausted and weary. I call it woozy. It's kind of like I'm dizzy slash a little nauseated. So I've had it for almost 13 years and I've been through a lot of doctors and tons of treatments and tons and tons of people praying to have God heal me. And, um, and I'm still here and it's still here. And it's a larger part of my life than I want it to be. And it keeps me low in a way that I think is actually good. So in this too shall last, I, um, I think the one thing that I would want to tell you that had a huge effect on me is I will always return to this book to remind myself about the journey of acceptance. And I would say, having read that book, your book, that you accepted 
the pain. You accepted the reality that people couldn't verify what you were feeling with blood tests. You accepted that people didn't know you. You learned to accept responsibility for saying to a doc in the room, no, I, I need to get, you need to go get somebody else because I'm not going to deal with you. You are speaking from a place of acceptance now. And mixed in all of that, as I read it, there is a story of you're supposed to be able to be healed from this in the right Christian, right relationship to God way. And I think that message is unendingly important because I hear stories from too many people who didn't know how to practice acceptance, didn't understand acceptance, and who fell for, if you were only right, you would be okay. Mm-hmm. Do you want to speak to that some? But, but, but as you do, I love that your ritual has to do with you being present to your body, which has been not good to you in so many ways. And yet, good to you in so many ways. I, mm-hmm. I, I want to be sure that we emphasize how long you're 33, right? Yeah, I'm almost 33. Yep. And so you've been dealing with this since you were 20, which is a very long time ago. Yeah. In some ways. And that's a long time to become as wise as I think you are. And everything I've seen you do since we started getting to look at each other is an expression of that wisdom. So I would love for you to talk about anything I just said in ways that are comfortable and honoring for you. Well, that was incredibly kind. I'm going to start there. Thank you. And, and yeah, I'm just, I'm kind of savoring what you just said because so much of my life has been, especially amongst Christians, a expectation that I need to move on or that if I just had faith, I would be healed. And that's, That's changed over the years as I've become more bold in speaking the truth that I've encountered. (laughs) Sometimes people kind of know not to, you don't need to go there with me anymore, but it has been, it's interesting. I, there's this language that like sometimes Christians on one hand, Christians like to say, if you had more faith, you pray more god will bless that it's it's an interesting like where does that whole theology begin where's the origin of that that could be a long long conversation but that's one like really common narrative or response that we have i'm talking interpersonally when you're faced with somebody hurting and you're faced with somebody expressing their doubt or saying like I can barely get out of bed. What's your response? And we're in our culture, just so including Christians, so uncomfortable with bodies that break and bodies that die, which is so ironic because the center of our faith is God dying before he was raised to do life. So there's that. And then The other side is that we want to say that suffering is a gift. So we ping pong between like, if you do the right set of praise and prayer, like you might be better, but also uh, you need to just immediately accept whatever sufferings in your life and only praise God for it anyway. That whole way of responding, I think, is more of an expression of our anxiety about our limitations that we all have, that that we all are going to die, that we all have losses. We're all losing people. We're all progressively losing function of different parts of our bodies. And I think our anxiety about that 
really gets in the way often of encountering the human beings in front of us as holy, as an expression of the divine image of God. There's that, that there might be something good here to listen to that a person doesn't just need to be fixed, but there might be something beautiful to encounter. And because my body didn't give me the choice with this disease of putting it into a locked box in one corner of my heart, I have had to learn how to have a better story than ping-ponging between God expects me to perform to be pleased with me and also God is cruel and likes to just like put bad things in people's lives to show off. Yeah, so I have a lot to say in response to that, unfortunately, because I want to hear you talk, not me. But you can talk. (laughs) In this too shall last, let me just say there is healing on every page. So I I think this understanding that there's no healing happening because you still have AS is a very short sighted way of looking at the reality of our. Amen. Yes. Yes. Um, I was listening to a interview with Krista Tippett the other day and she was referencing an older interview about this man who I think was in a car accident and is a paraplegic. And he talks about that. He is, he is still a paraplegic, but he's healed and he shows up wholly in the body that he has. That's healing. Like my body might be way more broken than it was at 19 years old. And it is. And yet I am much more whole now because the means of grace of this unavoidable pain has asked me, just like invited me again and again, every single day to actually honor my body like it matters. Like she deserves care. Mm -hmm. She deserves to be heard. She deserves to be held. And then what I find is that as I actually wrap my arms around myself and comfort the parts of me that are overwhelmed, I am like built back up to, it's almost like if I'm, if I'm like a, a fountain acceptance of and embrace of my body and these parts of myself that the church often shames takes the, this like stopper off the top of the fountain and suddenly water is able to come out. There's this beauty that gets to gush forth that, and like other people can drink from as well, but I got to embrace my wounds first. Um, But goodness, like, ah, there's just so much joy, so much joy in getting to bear witness to myself like I matter and then extend that to other human beings and watch them do the same. Ah. One of the things that you write about is that it's difficult for us to bear witness to pain. And one of the things I teach um, is that fours are the number on the Enneagram that have that ability. You are able to bear witness to pain without having to fix it. It's interesting to me then that you are a four with AS, and here's where I'm going with this. This too shall last is a essentially a journey through understanding what I call the Paschal mystery. Not everybody will recognize that, so we're talking about living, mm-hmm. dying, and rising. And I often say that 
we, we have churches that are all focused on the living. We have churches that are focused on the dying. We have denominations that do both. We have denominations that are focused on the rising. This is a whole story. It's the whole thing. And I think because you're able to wear bit, bear witness to pain, you saw pain in people who were misunderstanding or had a lack of understanding, an inadequate understanding of you. Mm-hmm. So what you did is you walked them through it all in relationship to their need, not yours. It's like, well, here's what, here's what I've learned and here's what's really happening. And here's who God really is. And this is what Jesus really said. And, and people get an opportunity to journey with you and end up understanding their own pain more because they can understand yours. Was that the goal? Yes, <laughs> you got <And> it. <laughs> you did yeah. it. Thank you. Oh, that's so encouraging. Okay. So when this book was coming out, what I didn't want to happen was people to say, this is a book for chronic illness. Because what I have found in my life is that my story of needing to bear witness to pain and that actually making me more whole is not special. And what I mean by that is this is the story of being human. That's right. I just can't avoid it because my joints scream at me sometimes for every single day. Like I just can't avoid it. But a lot of us have circumstances where it might be easier to avoid it for a long time. And so I wanted to just say, Hey, come sit down. I'll share with you about what this has looked like for me, because I know how terrifying it is to take a, to, to like befriend the parts of you that are that, tr- that a lot of churches and our culture says are not actually good. It's like, we're so afraid if we bear witness to our pain, if we pay attention to it at all, we're going to get stuck in it. And that actually terrifies us because we're afraid that we're going to lose what it takes to belong. And in America, what it takes to belong is to be productive. So I'm saying, slow down. If I can show you that I have deeper belonging now in my community and in this felt sense of the Trinity, you don't have to be so terrified and like, let's just spend a little time together in the safe space of these 224 pages Mm -hmm. that maybe you by the end could have an imagination that your belonging is based on the fact that you're already beloved and your whole life is included in that. So yes, that's the point. The point is this is our human story and it is a good story. Yes. And um, it, it's interesting also to me that of all the numbers on the Enneagram, I say, I think the longing ultimately for fours is to be seen and heard and maybe known, maybe even known. Mm-hmm. And I don't want, I, I'm choosing this language very carefully, so I don't want it to be missed. You embody needing to be seen and heard and maybe known in your illness as well as in yourself. So when I read about you with docs, it's like you were saying, look, I, I don't know what the blood work said, but I need you to see me and hear me and know me because somebody's got to. Mm-hmm. And most fours don't get to articulate that that way. So here's my metaphor. They don't know to light the candle. Mm-hmm. They don't know how important that is. They don't know that you can actually light the candle yourself. Exactly. Like we're waiting for someone to light the candle for us. Right. And there are Christians who in my way of knowing who God is and who I am in relation to God, don't have the same understanding that I have about 
what God wants for everybody. And that there's only abundance that God can't do anything, but be faithful. Mm -hmm. But you know, it's hard to get people to, to show up every Sunday with a non-punitive, non-demanding God in charge. Yeah. It's scary. It's actually sometimes scarier. Yeah. Yeah. To be loved on something else, build on something else. Mm-hmm. So I will forever refer to you as a four to the fourth power. <laughs> Sorry. That's hilarious. <laughs> it's like it, fits, it just fits everything that I know about you. That's hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> and that's I, so funny. And I am so anxious for you to have an opportunity on our podcast to talk about what you want to talk about right now. I love your book. I know you have a new book coming out. We will promote all of that. I am inclined to say I want the I want people to read This Too Shall Last first. Oh, I would love them to read it first. We kind of jumped just right into the deep end of the pool Sorry. at the start of the podcast. You want us back up a little bit? I do. So it's okay. <laughs> We're not going to like try to rearrange the, the interview or anything like that. And, you know, always a good time to mention it again. The name of the podcast is The Anagram Journey. And some things are more anagram related and some are more journey related and centric. And so love the conversation and like to get a little bit more. uh, Anagram. Little little anagram. We're going to. Yeah. So I'm good with that. Yeah. Great. I led right into it with she's a four to the fourth power. Four to the fourth power. You did. You did. (laughs) And so what that also leads to my question as a four to the fourth power, how did you end up with one as your first uh, oh, gosh. identification? And talk about that. Yeah. So for those who do not know, which is probably everyone, almost everyone, I mistyped as a one for a long time, like over a year. Um, in my earliest days of exploring the Enneagram, And I will say part of how that happened is because my husband and I were some of the first in our community to be exploring the Enneagram. So we didn't have the benefit of being able to be like, Rachel's really different than you. And she's one. So, and that's a real person, actually, very dear friend. Um, We didn't have that help of the embodied presence of just the nuances of this person holds themselves very differently than you do. This person struggles with this more than you do. They're, they can show up for that in a better way than you can. Um, we didn't have that. So we were kind of basing things on books and, you know, we were in, um, we were, we, part of our, we were in this two-year soul care process, my husband and I, Ryan, who is a nine, And part of our process was getting some training in the Enneagram and to use it as like pastors and for me as a therapist and the, they use a assessment. Um, They use the WEPS, the Wagner. And I was like, just almost equal in my one and my four and then eight was close behind that. And uh, so I remember walking up to the the people the uh, what's the word the people who were leading it <laughs> um these two old guys and they I was like look um after maybe this was like six months after starting the process like reading all sorts of things being like this is pretty good news for me like I'm I'm doing pretty well if I'm a one <laughs> I've got a lot you know like don't go to as many dark places and I'm not as angry as I used to be. So like, I think I'm growing, but that's everybody's saying that I should feel pegged and maybe that's not what's actually here. Cause I'm young and I think I have a lot more problems than this is saying I have. <laughs> and so I walk up to one of the leaders and I'm just like, here's my scores. Here's what I'm processing. What do you think? And he's like, I think you just don't want to be a one. So I heard him. I was like, okay. But it was like in, in that moment, the, the anger of not being heard um, by someone who was in a role to hear me and to, to actually hear the story 
behind the numbers, the the layout of my percentile scores of all my types, he he didn't hear me. And that was super helpful because that anger mobilized me to explore my story even more. And so that involved thinking about my childhood and what it felt like to be little me and also continuing to have conversations with my husband about how I'm just not sure. I'm not sure I'm a one. And, and he would say, I, I think you're a one. I think that's it. And then I would feel so missed. And over time, that anger of being missed by him, misunderstood by him, misunderstood by these leaders led me to realize, oh, I've felt this way my whole life. I haven't felt known. And I had to come to a settledness in my spirit with who I am on my own first before being told my type or having my type affirmed by anybody else. And when I finally came to that spot of, I think I'm a four, I think this is who I am. It was like coming out of the closet. I was like, I, I had all these parts of myself, this little weirdo creative that I actually am. They were buried under this exterior of being like a one of trying to be good mm-hmm. and be collected, which later, long, long time later, I realized was got into my subtype, but that took a lot longer to figure out too. So anyway, it was, it was a process, but part of that involved listening to uh, early interviews with you, Suzanne. And there was this one, I told you guys the story, but there was this one where you guys were interviewing a female one. I think it was just one lady. And I was like yelling at my phone (laughs) being like, you guys got it wrong. This is not what it's like to be a one. She is so different than me. And maybe she mistyped herself. And I really (laughs) almost went on your Facebook page. I almost went on your Facebook page to be like, I just want to bring it to your attention that we're not all like this. And then I was like, but then they're going to judge me that I'm just being a critical one. So I can't do it. But anyway, it was all part of the process of, of realizing, oh, it didn't feel right because it wasn't like me. Mm-hmm. And, and that was something to pay attention to. And, and it, I did end up paying attention to it, but long, it was a long process, but the process, man, oh, holy the, and the, the, the role of the anger in it, I think, was like an integrating force between my mind and my heart. It, it kind of brought me together to be able to feel missed and be angry about it, like connected me to my story in a way that I needed the courage to explore. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a lot of experience for you of saying, no, that's not me. No, that's not me. No, that's not me either. Yeah. It's interesting how in discomfort people assign to us how they want us to be, to make them more comfortable. Mm -hmm. I've got one for the two of you. Mm. Seven's fear is being stuck in pain. You are um, embracing the pain that you're stuck in. What is the bridge between you? Like if I said, okay, over the topic of pain, you two bridge to one another. What would that sound like? That is a great question. This might not answer the question, but whatever. (laughs) We're just going to dismiss that. And I'm going to talk about other things. No. Which by the way, he's been doing since he was a child, just dismissing (laughs) questions. I asked that he didn't want to answer. I refuse to be stuck in this question. (laughs) Um, Yes. No, I think when you were talking earlier, I was like, man, this is spot on just what the Enneagram and you teach to sevens that, that they need. You know, I love, I've been getting to sit and listen to a guy named Andy Stoker do a series here at the Micah center on mindfulness meditation. And every single time he talks about, you know, your, your pain is not you, your feelings about your pain does not define you. Your, all these things, they're not you. And I think that 
the uneducated seven, such as myself, thinks that, you know, that the pain is me, that I will be stuck in it, that the need to understand the pain is something that I heard you talking about that I also, or, or the suffering or whatever it is, that I need to understand it to cope with it. And that's just not necessarily true. And what I heard you talking about, one of the things that I've loved hearing, there's a great podcast episode of this podcast uh, <laughs> with Luke Norsworthy and you and the Reverend talking about mystery mm-hmm. and our inability to cope with mystery. And I, I heard you talking about that a lot. That's what I heard was the church not being okay with, they're just being mystery. It's like, sometimes you don't have to give me an answer. Don't give me an answer that whatever, whichever way the wind is blowing, that's the answer that I'm getting today. You know, oh, you need suffering or, oh, if you, your faith was stronger, whatever. I wish the Reverend were here right now. The truth around life that, that life is hard. You are going to die. All, all these things that we're not learning nowadays in our, in our culture as youth growing up. And then we have, we get diagnosed with AS. I, you know, all the things that I, I put on myself <laughs> from not dealing with suffering and ignoring the, the other half of life. And it's not half, you know, I, the idea that life is uh, 50% happy and great and good and easy and wonderful and joy and half is not that it's not that it's just being okay with sometimes it's going to be hard. And like you said, just because it's hard doesn't mean you're going to be stuck in this hard place. It's, it's temporary or, and who knows how temporary it is, but, but this life and this body's temporary. So that hard place is as well. If we're looking for a bridge, when you were talking, those were all things that invited me onto the bridge to hear what you were saying as a, as a seven that I really connected with. Thank you. Um, I, I see, I've seen a good handful of sevens in my therapy practice over the years. And, and it does, therapy looks different with sevens than most of my clients. And I find that the bridge that I need to build to get them considering walking towards acceptance or being seen, being comforted is about our time orientation. Yeah. Oh, that's good. That they're usually the sevens are usually talking to me about the future mm. and the future of like, what am I going to do for the holidays? And it, and it's usually about avoiding future pain and And I could get stuck in the past. And so the present becomes our bridge. There you go. This present orientation of making enough space and enough safety, building enough embodied physical safety with the person sitting in front of me to be able to start to get into our senses for them to start to feel not like get to think further than their thoughts about maybe having feelings and sink into, Oh, my heart is pounding right now. Let's become curious about what that's like. There's a slowing that I almost feel like I have to titrate it (laughs) for a seven to not just like make it, all what I would do with anybody else at first and jump into like a, a breathing guided meditation, but like be able to engage some of this like need for banter and play, but then keep pausing and trying to call their attention back to their body. And even using my own body and my immediate experience of their presence as a a bridge to what they might be feeling in their body that often feels like a stranger to them. I don't know why I feel like sevens have 
can can be pretty live pretty far from their bodies in my experience of my of my clients at least over the years what do you think about that is that true for you i think it's true in the fact that i don't stop to you know listening to your body like mm-hmm. listening to another person you have to stop and listen mm-hmm. and I have better relationships. So yeah, I have better relationships with other people because when you don't stop and listen to other people, it, they call you out on it and, yeah. uh, and they're in your face and then somebody else is, then they tell your sister and then, or whoever, and there are some real, um, the, the consequences for not listening to other people become very evident the consequences for not listening to my body is so, especially uh, I'm 37. It's so gradual and slow that I don't realize until pretty deep into neglecting my body that Mm -hmm. I haven't been listening to it. Do the two of you think that the present time could consistently be a place for past orientation, orientation to the past and orientation to the future? to meet like I I really hadn't thought about that until you said it. And I just wonder if that's a, if you're saying like, is that, could that be a commonality or something? I don't think so because of where we're coming from. Yeah. I, I hear, I hear that being pulled back from the future and being pulled to the present from the back. It's just, it's so different that it's not like a, Oh, we're both here now. Mm -hmm. Like we're both here from two very different places. And we're both here for two very different reasons. Yep. And you'd have to choose it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it, t- it takes a real choice. Mm-hmm. Like I'm going to let myself be here. And that's, it's, I do find it's very uncomfortable. Well, I'm actually getting a little squirmy um, in terms of comfort, uh, which I didn't anticipate. I, I just had my first hard birthday. I just turned 71 and I didn't struggle with any of the birthdays. Till now, I've been really trying to explore why. And it's because I'm very unhappy with the things in my body that don't work like they used to. And because of fairly good theology from my background, but still limited theology, I started to kind of get in touch with how I'm feeling about my joints and the loss of Uh, strength that I have and the pain that I have. And then because of bad theology, I stopped right in the middle and thought, Oh no, 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 no. It's nothing compared to yours. So I can't, Hmm. I don't get to feel that way. You're it's not about that. It's about everybody's personal journey. And it's about finding it in the context of the life and death and resurrection. It's, Mm -hmm. It's everybody's context. And to rank pain or life experience is a disconnect. It's, n- it's not necessarily respectful at all. It's a, it's a really socially acceptable distraction. Yes, it is, isn't it? Yeah. To feeling how you actually feel. Yeah. And being comforted. It's so interesting because, you know, I say that I... I'm not teaching people about who they are. I'm teaching about people who they're not. And you're saying, I'm more than this pain. I'm more than AS. I'm more than my history. I'm more than all of that. Is there a lesson that you've learned that you kind of hand to every number who comes to you? Yeah. No, I'm thinking, I'm thinking of this maybe because of where I'm sitting um, in terms of how this happens in therapy but what I find myself I'll probably I'll I'll name it in two ways what I find myself handing to people every person is a invitation to be in their body to to befriend their body Mm -hmm. and in therapy and in a lot of my work what that looks like is getting to know their nervous system, getting to like to dare to attune to the shifts happening between different stress states 
between we're connected right now. So we're in a certain nervous system state, but there might be a moment where I feel I'm starting to feel missed by you. Or um, if I was of a different type, like maybe you said something that I feel like somebody needs to be defended. Like you're, you're um, kind of trampling over someone and, and their vulnerability that might sink me a bit into a sympathetic stress state. So I'm, I think what I'm always inviting people to is this presence to being present to their physicality as a good sacred space. And, and a lot of that will look very, it'll look different person to person based on the entry points of their story and their wounds. Um, because we have different home bases, like our home away from home and our nervous system. Um, and I, and I think someday it'd be really interesting to get into like what the different home away from home is for different triads, because I think we are, um, some of us are living in a different place. Um, some of us are going to be more prone to a like fight or flight response. Some of us are going to be more prone to a shutdown withdraw. Some of us are going to live at the border between those two. All of us were made for the home of connection and joy. How do we learn how to go home, a real home? How do we learn how to find our way back to home? And that's something like I wrote about a lot in my next book, but, and there's bits of that in there in, in this two shall last. But I think that's what I'm inviting people to in the second side of that, that I think actually it really is like one coin is I'm inviting people to grieve. Me too. I think we are in a world of hurt because we don't know how to grieve. I've said for a long time, I think the church served me well in many ways. And as you say, uh, my way of saying is I've tried to break up with the church lots of times, but I just can't do it. Seems like the same is true for you. Yeah. Um, We're married. (laughs) Okay. We only have time for one more question, which out of the hundred. We only have time today for one more question. There you go. That makes me happy. That makes me very happy. As we begin to emerge from liminal space that we have all had to participate in, in one way or another, what is one piece of wisdom from your life experience that you think would help us emerge answering the question, what did I learn? I would just deeply encourage people to not rush to emerging into a normalcy or even just like the way you think about your life to this state that feels better without making some real space to name the losses of this last season and along with naming the losses to, and that's going to take courage. That is going to take courage because it is not something that we have been given many tools to do or much welcome to do, but dare to name the losses in a very personal way and dare to release, to express grief in whatever form it arises, including rage in a safe space, somebody else who can hear you and honor you and honor that your expression of rage is not a loss of your faith or your expression of despair or despondency is not a loss of your faith, but a faithful offering within it. Dare to go there because our ungrieved grief actually comes with us everywhere we go. And it will, it's like a, it's, it's like a, can be like a 
heavy weight. It can be like a door that, that won't open. It's like you, you have to, we have to be willing to respect what we've lived before we can give it back, give it back to the world, give it back to the earth from which it came mm-hmm. and have enough energy to step into a new season of our lives with hope. So I, I think that's my encouragement for people dare to grieve mm-hmm. and, you know, find, find a therapist to do that with, um, be bold with one of your best friends and like create a grief ritual together, read the wild edge of sorrow that has a lot of really great expressions of how to grieve, how to let yourself go there and why it matters. But there are like small creative ways that we can honor what we've been living. And if we don't honor it, it is going to hold us back. Not because it is mean, but because it's wise. Yes, yes, yes. And yes, I'm so thankful for your expressions of your life experience. I'm so thankful you're willing to share them. I have so much to learn from you. I will start pestering Joel soon for a, an extended, another, for another one, for another conversation. I would, I would love that. I would love that too. Thank you. Thank you for just holding gracious, sacred space for this conversation. Even I know that's what you do all the time, but it's a real delight. And just, been, I feel like I've just been savoring being with you and that you go slow enough for it all to matter. So thank you. You're so welcome. So now you have stuck it out through the outro of the beautiful music and theme song of the Anagram Journey, and you're ready to hear about From Intentional to Intuitive, an Anagram event with Suzanne Stabile, the one that your journey has been leading you to, August 4 through 6 in Dallas or online. Let me set the stage here for you. It's Thursday night. Show up or you log in. Suzanne is going to start talking about Jonah, and she's going to talk about her four mantras. And if you've ever heard Suzanne talk before about Jonah, she says that you can teach anything with the story of Jonah. Well, this night, she's going to use it to teach her four mantras, as well as set the table and introduce us all to fear, anger, and shame. She's taught for a long time, just underneath the surface for the heart triad is shame. Just below the surface for the head triad is fear. And when you scratch the surface just below that for the body or the gut triad is anger. Well, how is each number supposed to deal with these? And what about what's not just below the surface, but a little bit deeper? And then what's a little bit deeper below that? Could our inability to acknowledge and appropriately respond to shame, fear, and anger be keeping us from holistic healing or our space in the anagram that Suzanne says is the high side of our security number? We've had two big events in the past year. The overwhelming constructive criticism, if we want to call it, or suggestions were more Suzanne and more Anagram. You got it and you got it. LTM has also added a third, and that's make it more affordable. LTM has always strived to make every opportunity and event possible for anyone, regardless of cost. And when you're thinking about venturing to Dallas and you've got to take into account airfare, a car, lodging, food, going to a ranger game, buying Mavericks memorabilia, smoking a cigar with Joel, that all, it it adds up. Then on top of that, you might have childcare that you got to deal with. So this event starts at $150 to come in person. And if you can't come in person because of any reason, it's $100 to join virtually. And for all registrants, the replay is available for two months after the event. That way you can really soak it in or be called out and challenged, depending on what space you're in. From intentional to intuitive, dealing with fear, anger, shame, showing up, paying attention, telling the truth, not getting attached to the results, 
Are you going to be the victim? Are you going to be the victor? All these things are going to come together August 4th through 6th with the Annie Graham Godmother, the woman who brought you the road back to you, the path between us, the journey toward wholeness, and the Annie Graham Journey Curriculum. And quite honestly, the woman who loves you. She is so relational, it is Greek to me. It, it's unbelievable. So, please join us August 4th through 6th. You can get your tickets at SuzanneStabile.com for both in-person or virtual. You can also get tickets at LifeInTheTrinityMinistry.com. And if you just really like visiting the podcast webpage, you can find the link to one of those places at TheAnnieGramJourney.org. Come, grow, transform, join LTM. It's a place for solitary work that cannot be done alone.